Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, my name is Julia Sherman, and my newest cookbook is called Artie Parties, an entertaining cookbook, and it's published by Abrams Books. Before diving into this book, I'd like to thank my new sponsor, Bloomist. Bloomist creates and curates simple, sustainable products that inspire you to design a calm, natural refuge at home. I'm excited to announce they've just introduced a new tabletop and kitchen collection that's truly stunning. Surround yourself with beautiful elements of nature when you're cooking, dining, and entertaining, and make nature home. Visit Bloomist.com and use the code COOKERY20 to get 20% off your first purchase or click the link in the show notes. Now on with the show. In your follow-up to Salad for President, where you explore the meaningful connection between food, art, and everyday obsessions, Artie Parties explores integrating the artist's touch at home. And you emphasize the point that food doesn't matter. I mean, what a relief. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was a funny conclusion to come to as a cookbook writer. And, you know, this is first and foremost a cookbook. It has, you know, upwards of 90 recipes. And so uh, I don't want to make it sound like I don't think the food matters in my in my world, but I do find that people get really hung up on it. When I was really thinking about what do I want to contribute to the world of entertaining guides and tomes, I think that what I came away with was thinking about the best parties that I had ever had. And they were certainly not the ones where I nailed it on every single dish. So that should come to as a relief to most of your listeners, because it definitely came as a relief to me. And I think the biggest takeaway from this cookbook is to take risks. And you say to use the cookbook as sort of a laboratory to express yourself. Yeah, I think that that a lot of people have come to use the internet and social content as this sort of um, copycat or, you know, this kind of uh, call to, to replicate what is this perfect image of domestic, uh, you know, success. And I, I find it all to be very sterile and very impersonal. And when I look at the way that artists in my world entertain and the way that I hope that I entertain my friends and my family, I really think that the, the what sticks with, with everybody and what really becomes an important takeaway is when you have an experience that you feel is really an entree into the person's mind and into their world and their passions and what they're thinking about, what they're experimenting with, not so much um, this kind of polished performance uh, that, that kind of has an opaque back end, if that makes sense. All your friends in this book are just so wonderfully creative and fun, but I really love Francesca DiMatteo and her headdresses. So Francesca is a Renaissance woman. She's an amazing sculptor, a self-taught sculptor uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, she studied painting and she's so incredible in that, you know, there's no boundaries around what she considers her work and what she considers her home life. One, on the occasion that I went to go 
visit her upstate. She was getting together a party for her son's birthday and she had the idea that she was going to create these paper mache headdresses of all these different animals and it was sort of this Noah's Ark scene. And so, you know, five minutes before the party, Bruno, her son, decided that he would absolutely not wear this thing, that it was not comfortable. And she had made them for all the kids and all the kids came over and she tried to get them to wear them. And they were, there were a lot of tears until she finally gave up and all the adults ended up spending the entire day dutifully wearing her uh, paper mache headdresses. But, you know, and then to decorate the table, it was plates that she made with her son that were sort of this like messy, beautiful, naive design. And then she went into the garden and picked all these things that one would normally think were like compost. You know, it was late fall. And so there was dried leaves and, uh, you know, plants that had bolted and gourds and things like that. And she just made this abundant table. And it was really incredible because I don't think there was a single store-bought item in that whole experience. So you entertain all the time, which gets expensive, and you champion ingredients such as cabbage, celery, and canned sardines. You talk Mm -hmm. about finding infinite inspiration in a head of cabbage, and I think the best example is your cast iron cabbage tinka. Could you describe this? I am a huge fan of taking the humble cabbage and making it the main event. And I I think most people, their mind doesn't go to cabbage when they think about uh, how to spoil people at a dinner party. But I really feel like this is, that cabbage can be transformed in so many ways. And it really, it really is an exciting vegetable, especially when you cook it properly and give it a little time, a little bit of love. So the cabbage tinga, you sear the, the quarters of the cabbage and there's all different types of cabbage you can use. I've done this with red cabbage. I've done this with flathead cabbage, which is really nice. And cone cabbage, also your regular green cabbage is perfect. And then you simmer it slowly in a sauce, uh, a tinga sauce, which has some chipotle. It's got some some warming spices. And, you know, I also say you can totally do this with uh, whatever tomato sauce you have around. Maybe you want to spice it up a little bit. I love using Mexican chilies. So if you want to do that, but, you know, you slow cook it in the cast iron pan and it really just just kind of melts. It becomes so soft and so silky. And the the sauce also reduces down to this sort of intense flavor. So for me, this is kind of, this is a very, very affordable way to feed a crowd. And it's just not something anybody sees coming. So lots of entertaining cookbooks uh, focus on the final result. But this book is an homage to process. You say there's an art to putting it all together and an art to letting it go. I swear you made this book for me because the thought of pulling a dinner party together makes my palms sweat. If you could give me one takeaway, what would it be? I think it would be that entertaining is really an opportunity for you to experiment and for you to kind of figure out what what are the new things that you want to try. And I think that, that the thing to remember is that everybody has a good time when they know that the host is having a good time. And when they see you sweating and trying to perfect something or make it seem like everybody's at a restaurant, that's not fun. Um, so I think the fun thing is to loosen up and to just use this as an opportunity to bring something new into your life and also your friends' lives. 
Artie Parties was really one revelation after another for me. You're so honest and down to earth, especially in the section called Tag Your It, where you wrote about starting this book by interviewing your friends who have never invited you over for a meal to discuss the concept of reciprocity. And you came up with four conclusions. So number one is don't put the food under a microscope. Your friend Joanna was worried you would find faults in her cooking. Yeah. So Joanna is one of my closest friends. She actually illustrated my first cookbook. Her name is Joanna Avales, and she's so talented and so wonderful. And I was feeling secretly a little bit hurt that I had never been invited over to her house when she was sort of a fixture in my in my kitchen. So I did use this book as an opportunity to figure out what what I was doing wrong and why why I wasn't being invited over to other people's homes. And I think a lot of that, you know, was that people assume that I want to entertain and I want to host because, and rightfully so, I mean, it's the greatest pleasure of my life, but sometimes I want a night off. And I also think you learn a lot about your friends by going to their house and, and, and letting them show you their way, you know? Um, so I, I did talk to Joanne about this and she gave me some really valuable advice, which was that I had been taking an incredibly critical tack to my own cooking. And this is where that thesis that, you know, the food really doesn't matter comes into play because I had been asking my guests often to critique my food. And this felt very natural to me because, you know, my background is in visual arts and critique is the greatest form of compliment. It's, you know, giving somebody your time, giving them your brain to to help them improve what they're doing. And when you write cookbooks, there's a lot of recipe testing and a lot of asking your friends to eat your food and give you feedback. So I had been folding that into so many of our meals together and it was leaving her with this sense that were she to have us over at her house, I would take the same critical lens to everything that she made, which is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, and so, you know, we got right on back on track and I actually went over to her house for dinner last week. And, you know, I, I was very clear with her that like, this is what I do, but I, I do need to be conscious of the fact that uh, other people don't necessarily want to be dragged into it and they just want to enjoy your party. But I think that we all do, a, we all have the tendency to apologize when something goes wrong or when, you know, you didn't get some a dish perfect, you're under season something, whatever. But, you know, leave those apologies at the door because little, little do you know, but people are internalizing that and they feel like that's actually a lot of pressure when it comes to the, the next time that they are thinking about inviting you into their home, which, you know, maybe they're not very experienced cooks, but, you know, I, I, I definitely freed her of those anxieties and told her, you know, should she have me over for with a loaf of bread and some sardines, I would be more than thrilled. So number two is sit when you're dead. If you mm -hmm. never have a sit down dinner again, you will be better for it. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm a very active and impatient person. And so, I mean, this is probably why I love to be the host is also, you know, gives me an excuse to be bopping around and getting up from my chair and going to the kitchen and, you know, checking in on everybody that, that feels way more comfortable for me than sitting still. Um, and, and, uh, you know, finding my place card and remaining there for the next three hours. So I try not to impose that context on my guests. And I, I think that especially when I spoke to 
a lot of friends who live in New York, you know, one common refrain that I heard was that people felt that they were uh, they were not set up to host because they didn't have a proper dining table or they didn't have the space. But, you know, the packed apartment, that kind of bustling vibe or sitting on the floor, or if you really don't want to be in your house, like, you know, like having everybody meet in a really special location. Like, I think all of these things are, you know, there's so many different ways to host, but I think this flexibility and, and the movement of it and the energy is really something to keep in mind. And I, I don't feel like the best parties that I go to are the ones where I'm seated the whole time. And I've got, you know, this sort of traditional setup of a dinner partner to my right and my left and across from me. And that's about it. So number three is all about flexibility. Space is a concept. And I live in Greenwich Village and I've had some of the best parties over at the Hudson River Park. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is that you, you know, party does not have to happen in your, in your house and that, you know, artists often entertain in their studios where, and there's a few examples of that in the book, but where, you know, there's not that expectation that they're walking into, you're walking into a perfectly appointed apartment, you know, it's, it's rough. It's supposed to be, it is what it is. And there, you know, there's a, a, a story in the book in Paris, I went to a party at my friends who are a book pub, they publish artist books and these sort of books that really are more like sculptures. And they had this, the party in the studio, you know, the fluorescent lights are on, they're not trying to make it into anything that it's not. And it was one of the best parties I've ever been to, you know, it just had energy and it, and that's, and, and it was so great to be let into their workspace and to kind of see how, how they, how they're living their everyday lives and where they're passions lie. But I love your idea of, you know, going to the park is sort of, that is a really great solution if you feel like your space is too small. I once had a party at the top of this hike in Los Angeles um, that at the top there's of the mountain, there's a burn down the remains of what was a a old resort in the 50s and there's like a train the train tracks that used to take everybody up to the top of the mountain and there's all these sort of ruins of of a of a resort of yesterday and we all we did a potluck where we all hiked to the top and then everybody shared food we had a picnic and you know that was such an unusual thing and it really motivated people to do something they wouldn't have done otherwise and it's also great if you have kids kids because not everyone can get a babysitter and you want couples to come together. So if they can bring the kids, it's even better. Totally. I mean, I feel that a lot since having kids myself is that it's it's a big ask to get people to find childcare and leave their kids at home. Um, so most of my parties these days happen at like 4.30, 5, you know, and I think that feels inclusive and it feels more natural to everybody. And it's also, it's more intimate. Number four, optimize for leftovers. So when thinking about cooking for a dinner party or guests, I never consider leftovers. I mean, every single recipe has a key at the bottom that lets you know if it is good for leftovers. Um, so if you want to make extra and and know that you're going to have lunch for the rest of the week, then that is a really smart way to entertain and cut down on the amount of work you're doing total in, in the kitchen. But for example, there is a braised lamb taco that is so delicious. And I was developing this recipe and in order to cook the meat and to get it super tender, it has to be pretty much submerged in, in the sauce that's made from chilies and tomato and uh, cinnamon and all it's it's really a 
outstanding. And so that sauce only gets better as the the dish cooks because, you know, all the juice from the lamb is mixing in there and, and it's a slow cook. So once we served the tacos and everyone had eaten all the meat, I was left with a pot of this sauce. And I was like, there's no way I'm throwing this out. So I developed a pozole recipe for the next day that really truly does not need any meat in it. You can just use the sauce as your base and then put squash in it, hominy, you know, a whole host of vegetables. But that's like two really, really substantial meals with with essentially like one basic prep time. So, you know, something like that for me also, it's a great way to justify spending all your, your weekend cooking for friends because you're also cooking for your family for the rest of the week. So could you talk a little bit about photographing this whole cookbook? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a photographer before I'm a cook, uh, before I'm a writer. That's what I studied in uh, at school. And that's what I've been doing all along. Um, and so photography for me, you know, I love, I taught myself how to do food photography when I started my blog, Salad for President. And so the the shoot for this was just so much fun. I mean, it was also in the pandemic and it felt like such a gift to just be able to work closely with people in person. And we shot about, you know, 10 dishes a day. And I had an, a wonderful food stylist named Vivian Liu, um, who just is, you know, food stylist on a photo shoot for a cookbook is really your producer. I mean, they're, they're invaluable. Um, and I did all the, the prop styling myself. And so that involved, you know, working with a lot of local artists to source plates and bowls. And then Daniel Gordon, who's the artist I collaborated with on the cover and the chapter openers, we made, we made backgrounds for all the food by taking crops of his existing artworks and then blowing them up and printing them on vinyl wallpaper. So, you know, the surface that you see all the food shot on, those were all made for the shoot And so, you know, there's a lot that goes into preparing all the elements for a photo shoot like this, because in my mind, I really just don't want two images to ever feel the same. My priority is always to kind of find that balance between things looking really artful and and different than other cookbooks. And, but at the same time, the food has to look beautiful. So the food has to look good. I never wanted to feel like we're sacrificing the um, appeal and of the of the recipes themselves for the kind of impact of the styling or anything like that. I love that I didn't see one picture of marble. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So this is the thing is in order to do these shoots, most most often people are relying on prop houses. And that's a big reason why when you look through your cookbooks, if you pay attention to the backgrounds, you're going to see most of them are the same. Most cookbooks are using, you know, some distressed wood, some Carrara marble, some, you know, maybe some distressed metal. But these are sheets of material that one rents for like $100 a day from a prop house. So it's extremely expensive. And it's also you know, yields an image that looks a lot like everyone else's. So we went to a great, great trouble to try and do something different. So you say snacks count as hosting. One of the revelations that people need to embrace about hosting is that it doesn't have to be the dinner party. The dinner party is a lot of pressure and you don't need to be, uh, you know, game for that. I think it counts to host if you have someone over for coffee, if you have someone over for a snack. Maybe this was just my excuse to make a bunch of recipes for popcorn because I'm a, a popcorn addict. But I think, you know, you you if you put a little bit of creative energy into one little detail, it goes a long way, you know, like to have some 
over for movie night and make Japanese popcorn is amazing. You know, like people are going to always remember that. You don't have to do a whole meal. It's really about the experience and the gesture. Can you describe your turmeric poppy kettle corn? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, kettle corn is basically, you know, it's it's an incredible tool for getting anything to stick to your popcorn. So it's a little bit of sugar, not not very much into the pot. And when the sugar melts and caramelizes, it's going to put, it's going to create a sticky surface that anything else you throw in there is going to adhere to the kernels. So, you know, we, so it's a little bit sweet, it's a little bit salty. It's this beautiful orange color because it has the turmeric in it. And then the poppy seeds for kind of crunch and, and sort of a, and a flavor that is a little bit hard to place, but it's so, so fun and so delicious. So I really, I recommend this one um, for, you know, movie nights, or if you're the type of person who watches the Oscars or anything like that, or, you know, succession on a Sunday night, like that's a really, a really great way to host. Now to my segment called Dream Dinner Party, where I ask you who you most want to invite to your dream dinner party and why. And for this segment, it can only be one person. I think it would probably be Agnes Varda. I mean, she's not alive anymore, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she uh, she was a, a French new wave filmmaker and she was so playful and so incredible. And a lot of her films had her own voiceover and they were super personal. And she would do things like, you know, once she went to Cannes and she came dressed as a potato because her her movie, The Gleaners and I, is uh, was it starts out with a scene of potato gleaners. And, you know, she was just this incredibly playful woman and she really didn't follow it by any, any conventions. And she was creative and dynamic until, she, I think she died at like the, oh, nearly a hundred. Um, and I, I really, I love older people, especially older women. It's sort of, um, I could just sit and listen to, to them talk forever, especially older artists and the stories that they have. And so I think any event, any, anything with Agnes Varda would be a dream for me. Where can we find you on the web and social media? at Salad for President on Instagram and my blog is saladforpresident.com and then also if people want to sign up for my newsletter there's a a link to do that on my website and you can get updates about events coming up for the book and also my low alcohol sparkling verju called Juju which will be launching again in a few weeks to purchase arty parties and support the podcast head on over to cookerybythebook.com and thanks Julia for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast Of course. Thank you so much. This was great. Follow Cookery by the Book on Instagram. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.